Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, this is Movie Oubliette, the pole connecting podcast with me Dan just completing sound design on an animation about algebra and self-discovery in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, awaiting the delivery of a portaloo in Cambridge, UK. Okay. Uh, in this podcast, we <laughs> deliberate over fantastical films, horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. Because although life can be hard sometimes, at least vampires only exist in movies. And that's what we love. Hello, Conrad. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well, yes. Portaloo, so you've you been say? Port- <laughs> <laughs> Portaloo, yes. So um, I'm going to have uh, my garden studio installed oh, yes. uh, this month. Handling. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. And uh, the guy who's going to be hand building it for me, right? Uh, because obviously he doesn't want to be coming into my house all the time to use the facilities. Oh, uh, yes. He's asked if he can have a portable toilet delivered <laughs> to my driveway. Oh. <laughs> so I am waiting as we speak, for that to arrive, <laughs> which is quite entertaining. Wow. Yes. But anyway, it's exciting for me because I am looking forward to having my my custom-built garden working space mm. erected in the garden shortly. So, yeah, wow. exciting times. That is very exciting. It is, yes. But more exciting, you've been sound designing again. Yeah, yeah. So just completed an animation. Uh, it's called Finding X. It's on YouTube. It's, uh, yeah, uh, racking up quite a lot of views and comments uh, already. Uh, the the YouTuber Tibbies, uh, she does uh, mathematical uh, YouTube videos all about maths, uh, which I didn't think was a popular subject, but it is um, because obviously every school teaches maths. So yeah. very, very uh, relatable to a lot of people. But yeah, this animation she made, she didn't animate herself, but she wrote it and she um, did the voiceover for it. And it's just amazing. It's uh, it's it's yeah. more, it's a lot more than just maths, let's just say. It is, yeah. It's an imaginative and fun way to explain some very, very complicated things, which I appreciated because it, it's been a long time since I studied maths. Mm, mm, yeah. 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 Go go watch it now. It's on YouTube. It's called Finding X. Yes. And it's got great sound design. My favourite <laughs> bit was when the fish were slapping up against the boat. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That's just me slapping my arm. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I think I slapped my arm and I slapped like a wet towel. Ah, yeah. well, it worked. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Yes. <laughs> so, Conrad, have our listeners been talking to us? What have they been saying in the mailbag today? Well, we have a new patron to welcome on board, Katerina. Welcome. Ooh. Great to have you on board as a supporter. Thank you so much. Yes, welcome. On the forthcoming Blumhouse remake of Firestarter starring Zac Efron, mm-hmm. Zach Jenkins said, if there aren't any fireballs on strings, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, hate to disappoint, but I, I'm pretty sure it's all going to be CGI. Yeah. And bad. This is the thing. The fireballs on strings looked good because they were real fireballs. Mm. So just do real fireballs and CGI out the strings. That's what I say. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We want we want to see like yeah. a thousand people on fire and jumping on trampolines. Yeah, <laughs> just not the asbestos. Yeah, well, Let's not yes. smith- smother them in asbestos. Yeah. That'd be good. Not that. On other Drew Barrymore films that we should consider for dragging out of the oubliette, Dustin Rathbun says, I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention Ever After, a Cinderella story, since it was released. Oh. It's true, actually. That's actually one of 
Hannah's favorite movies, actually, my wife. She loves ah. that movie. She watches it a lot. Or she used to, anyway. Ah, I have not seen it. Is it fantasy? Kind of. It's just a romantic drama, really, set in the oldie-timey times. I can't even remember if there <laughs> are any fantasy elements. I can't remember. I was going to say, was it one of those revisionist, slightly more realistic things where there isn't any pumpkins yeah. and glass well, slippers think, and transformations? I think that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, more of a realistic retelling. Yeah. Yeah. Dustin also mentions one of my favourite Don Bluth animations, Titan A.E., which Drew Barrymore <sighs> does a voice for. Yeah, I watched that recently. I think last year for the first time. It's a good movie. Yeah. Some it of is the a good movie. CGI elements, the sort of more 3D animation stuff doesn't date very well, but for the most part, it's actually a really cool movie. Yeah. I'd be quite interested to revisit that again. Mm. We haven't done an animation for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Eddie Coulter says, I'm partial to doppelganger and bad girls. Oh, okay. I haven't seen either of them. Actually, I think I have Doppelganger, (laughs) but I haven't watched it. Really? Bad Girls, I think, is a Western, so out of the wheelhouse. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. Doppelganger I found, I think, from a secondhand thrift store. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) probably probably in 4-3 ratio. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Pan and scan. On Mothman, The Bog Queen said, I can't think of a film that feels so much like a bad dream. I watched it alone in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep. Best way to watch a horror film. When he gets the call from Indrid Cold, I had to turn it off. I was getting so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there you go. That's the power of Mark Pellington's voice. Mm -hmm. Still as potent today as it was at the time. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Sharky said, it's such a good film, surprised it's not talked about more. I still have a subconscious fear that an unplugged telephone might ring. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. That old cliche. Indeed. And on the bridge collapse, Jake says, as much as I was enjoying the film, it was that scene that elevated it as a whole, since I'm a big fan of disaster films, and that's probably the best bridge collapse in a movie. Mm. I would agree with that. That's true. Which is quite an achievement when you remember Mark talking about the limited resources that they had and how they were just pulling scraps together. So it's a testament to the sound design, the editing performance Mm. and the uh, scale model effects and so on. Yeah. And and also Mark Pellington scaring the shit out of a a little kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. And, of course, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Uh, Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. Hashtag The Mothman Prophecies might very well be my favourite film that's ever been reviewed by Movie Oubliette. No clue why its style wasn't copied even more extensively over the last 20 years. It's like everybody immediately recognised the champ and moved on. Right. Hmm. It's a solid point. I think you might be right. Yeah. So, yes, thanks, everybody, for writing in. We always love hearing from you. Yes, yes, we do. Well, I suppose we'll need something new for them to talk about next time. So uh, what shall we do, Dan? Well, uh, I'll just go grab the movie. Oh, I, I seem to be in some sort of dusty old crypt. Oh, lucky the gate's open. Yeah, and there are bats everywhere. And, oh... There's a corpse in a, in a coffin? Oh. Oh, no, actually, that's just my cousin. He must be sleeping. Oh. <laughs> Here's the movie. Oh, why don't we get married? Okay, I'm back. Oh, what did you get for us? <laughs> so today we are going to be discussing the 1964 film Crypt of the Vampire, as chosen by Eddie Coulter, uh, one of our patrons. So it was decided by... The Oubliette Roulette. Indeed. This movie is directed by Thomas Miller. Uh, <laughs> screenplay by Robert Bohr and Julian Berry. And it's based on a 1872 Gothic novella called Carmilla by Irish author Sheridan Lefanu, starring Christopher Lee, Audrey Amber, Ursula Davis, Jose Campos, and Vera Valmont. Ah. 
But I have a feeling that some of those names aren't the real names. <laughs> yes, we, we will get into that. So what's this movie about? Well, In the Crypt of the Vampire, a.k.a. Terror in the Crypt, or in its Italian title, La Crypta e l'Incubo. <laughs> we follow Laura Karnstein, a descendant of Sarah of Karnstein, an accused witch crucified at the stake 200 years previously. Laura has strange nightmares of death. We then follow arguably the least interesting and least important character, Friedrich Klaus, as he is invited <laughs> by Laura's father, Ludwig Karnstein, to their castle to investigate the physical appearance of the aforementioned witch, fearing that she has been reincarnated as his dear Laura. Meanwhile, one of the maids is sleeping with Ludwig. Another maid is enacting satanic rituals. And then we are introduced <laughs> to Luba a guest to the castle with romantic inclinations towards Laura. As Friedrich is repeatedly battered away by Laura, he finds out the truth. But it's not what you think, or is it? Severed hands, <laughs> hidden paintings, and vamp bites come to a head in this grisly gothic tale of lesbian vampires. Let's talk oh about it, Conrad. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, yes, let's. <laughs> okay, we are back to talk about Crypt of the Vampire, aka Terror in the Crypt, chosen by Eddie Coulter. I wonder if this is a favourite movie of his, because I'd never seen this movie, had you, Conrad? No. So one of the reasons why we asked our patrons to give us a list of films from before the 80s is because I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen an awful lot of films from before the 80s. And there's a huge gap as far as Christopher Lee's concerned. I kind of know him from filmmakers like Tim Burton including him in his films mm -hmm. because he grew up watching these 50s and 60s horror movies. But yeah, I haven't seen many, not even Hammer movies, and they're British, so yeah. I'm letting the side down. How about you? No, I hadn't seen this movie. I haven't seen that many black and white horrors, full stop. No. Christopher Lee, for me, I don't think I've seen anything pre-90s of Christopher Lee. Wow. Uh, obviously... <laughs> He was very iconic in Lord of the Rings as, as Saruman mm. and in uh, the Star Wars prequels as Count Dooku, even though those movies aren't great. His character is yes. amazing in it. And his yeah. image of Count Dooku has been sort of transferred onto the cartoons, animations and, and other Star Wars series. Oh, right. So he, he is very like iconic in all the characters that he plays, but... Hadn't seen anything pre-90s. Me neither. And I hadn't seen a lot of Italian horror films either. So this is an Italian-Spanish co-production Yes, from the gothic era. So I've seen a lot of uh, 70s ones because I fell in love with the movies of Dario Argento. And we've looked mm -hmm. at one of his movies, Bird with a Crystal Plumage. Yes. But yeah, nothing from the gothic era. Yeah. So I'm assuming this whole movie was dubbed Yes. Because there, there were many parts where the uh, dialogue did not match the, <laughs> the mouths <laughs> at all. No. Because I think a lot of the cast and, and crew were Italian. So when I was reading out the you know, director and writer, they were given these really ordinary Western names. So the director, Thomas Miller, was actually Camillo Mastro Cinque, ah. and the writer was... Um, credited as Robert Bohr, but his real name is Tonino Valeri. I guess to appeal to the Western market or to uh, appeal more relatable to the Western market. Yeah, but also I read in a book that I found very useful in researching this, Roberto Curti's Italian Gothic Horror Films from 1957 to 1969, right. which I highly recommend. He also says that Italian directors were just not known for horror. Right. So you would actually have audiences turning away or getting up and walking out if an Italian name came up on the 
the screen in the credits. Uh, really? So even in their own country, they had an image problem. So they would all end up with these Anglo-Saxon names. <laughs> yeah. And Christopher Lee was huge. I mean, it was Terence Fisher's Dracula, the Hammer Horror movie mm. in 1958 that went crazy in Italy and just drove this fascination with gothic horror. That's why he's here. Although he's not really the central character, I wouldn't say. No, not really. <laughs> so the central character, I would say, was Laura mm. Karnstein. So she's credited as Audrey Amber, but her real name is Adriana Ambisi. She's a stunning girl. Mm. She's got the dark raven hair and the unblinking stare. She stood out quite a lot in this movie. Yes, and in Italian Gothic cinema, there is a focus more on female protagonists rather than male protagonists, because usually, typically, the women are just damsels in distress to be mm. rescued, and it's a man that's sort of investigating and alongside Van Helsing conquering the vampire. But here, it's very much a focus on the women, and usually a focus on, because the 50s and the early 60s was a time of great change in the role of the woman in Italian society and elsewhere because of the emancipation of women mm -hmm. generally. There was this dialogue going on about free, loose women right. driven by their sexual desires and uh, the rejection of the male authority figure and of marriage generally. There's a lot of that going on in this movie. We can talk about that. Yeah. But certainly there's this focus on a complex female character who is haunted by a resurrection or a curse or a double, a doppelganger in some way. So she's this figure that's forced to live a life that isn't her own or conflicted in some way and battling some demon. So right, yeah, a right. lot of uh, focus on female characters in Italian Gothic, which is fascinating. Mm, yeah, I did love it in this movie because she just keep batting away the Friedrich character. And he yeah. was obviously, you know, it's almost like he thought he was in a normal movie. Yeah. So he was like wooing the girl, but she was just not interested. <laughs> no, no, she's not interested at all because, of course, she has the winsome qualities of Luba to draw her attention away. The blonde-haired, coquettish, smiling, chaste girl yeah. who shows up halfway through the movie. It's a strange series of events, though. I mean, she's involved in some sort of horse carriage accident and they witness it and then just immediately invite her in to the house. I mean, hospitality in those days, just outstanding. Amazing, yeah. No, I actually have that nominated in the movie, so I'll oh. talk about that in more detail there. Okay. But you're right, it's absolutely insane the way that she enters the story. But yeah, it is interesting that, um, I mean, spoiler alert, I mean, there are these two female characters and the whole film is built around this this curse, this ancestor that was accused of being a witch who died mm. and said that she would be reborn and she would kill all of the ancestors of the guys that had strapped her to a stake and burnt her alive or whatever. Mm. Yes, yeah, so the whole mystery is which girl is going to be uh, the reincarnation of this Sira character? And there are various people just sort of accusing each other, like the maids. And mm. everybody's got red herring written all over their forehead. And meanwhile, you've got this dark-haired, vampish Laura mm. sauntering around, giving heavy-lidded expressions at people and uh, speaking in tongues and so on when... Rowena, one of the maids, forces her to lie face down on a marble star in a cold crypt and yeah. participate in this ritual to try and find out what Zira's plans are. Yeah, there's this whole puzzle around the identity of who it's going to be. Mm. And it turns out to not be the one that you expect, which yeah. is interesting. I mean, th there was that twist. You, you did expect Laura the entire movie because they set it up to be, well, it's got to be Laura, right? She's having these strange dreams. Yeah. She's having these weird uh, epiphanies about existence. And she's got this sort of loneliness about her that she's trying to get to grips with. Mm. Um, and also uh, in the flashback sort of dream sequence with Sarah the witch in the past, she did say uh, someone's going to turn up in the Karnstein house. Like, I thought it was supposed to be a descendant of the Karnstein family, 
but Luba was not related at all. As far as we know, I mean, there just seemed to be a complete strange family that just shows up halfway yeah. through the movie and dumps their child on them. Yeah. Okay, we have to address the source material. So this is based on the 1872 gothic novella called Carmilla by Irish author Sheridan Lefanu. So this predates Bram Stoker's Dracula. It does, yeah. And it deals with lesbian vampires. It's (laughs) really interesting source material. It is, and it's been adapted multiple times. Danish director Carl Dreyer directed it in Vampire in 1932, although there weren't any (laughs) lesbians in the 1932 version. Roger Vardim's Emoria de Plaisir, which was released as Blood and Roses in 1960. Right. So that's considered a great film in the vampire genre because it has cinematography by Claude Renoir. So Yeah, exactly. And then you end up with Crypt of the Vampire in 63. And it's dealing with challenging material here. They're not hiding it at all in this movie. I mean, Mm. there are scenes where Laura is looking at Luba with these heavy-lidded, amorous expressions, like that (laughs) scene where they're outside and Luba's on the swing set. Yeah. And there are a lot of invitations into bedrooms with knowing looks late at night while the maid looks on in horror from a darkened corner. Mm. But I'm not sure it's necessarily supposed to provoke horror in the audience so much as just be dangerous and also titillating voyeurism or as much as they could get away with under the censorship regime of the 60s. And it was pointing towards what would happen in the 70s when censorship changed dramatically and Italian cinema, certainly in this sort of genre, became really quite exploitative right. um, and very different. So I'm not sure it's quite the reactionary conservatism that you might immediately think it is. Right, okay. I mean, I felt like the themes were, you know, vampires and homosexuality bad. Yeah. And the men fixed that by, you know, killing Luba's body in the crypt. Yeah, penetrating it with a huge spear. (laughs) I mean, that's the general gist of the movie, right? Vampires and homosexuality, evil, you know, heterosexuality and non-vampires good it is yeah and certainly she's scared straight by the end of the movie because the final coda at the end of the movie after they've impaled the woman and she's in the carriage and now she's making eyes at friedrich so yeah all is well christopher lee does a little smile to himself it's like yeah it's all good ride (laughs) off into the sunset quite literally yeah yeah you're right it is sort of uh, vampirism and lesbianism equals evil and corruption of the innocents and all is restored back to normal at the end so yeah Yeah. it speaks to a friction in society at the Mm. time Vampires and sex kind of go hand in hand, especially they do, in modern cinema. Is this the first mm. kind of depiction of that? It's certainly one of the first. I mean, Christopher Lee was considered quite the dish when he was Dracula. And I think the sense that one of Dracula's things is that he's alluring and handsome and that the women quite like getting mm. their necks sucked. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I think that's always been there. But this is, you know, flipping it and having the female being the allure wooer mm. and the predator i guess yeah very dangerous concept in 1963 yeah women making sexual advances rather than just passively receiving them yeah i mean mm. one thing i did have uh, take issue with this movie is if that is the case in terms of the themes why was it that luba was more of the passive receiver like it it seemed for the most part until the end that laura was the pursuer of love yes (laughs) she was the one making the advances and inviting her into bedrooms and i don't know like it, it looked like she was the one calling the shots yeah and i think there's two things there either it's just that luba is just as sira the reincarnation of sira just so alluring and so corrupting and so evil that she's leading laura astray and provoking all of these right. unnatural yearnings and urges in her yes. that she can't resist so she's sort of casting some sort of spell on her or the film is just so determined to cover up its final twist that it makes no bloody sense whatsoever <laughs> which i think is quite possibly 
the reality of the situation because Ernesto Gastaldi, I'm probably not saying that correctly, who is one of the screenplay writers, talks about his experience working on gothic films. One of his previous films, The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, he said the producer wanted to remove the last 12 pages from the script, the ones that explained the mystery. Quote, I feebly objected that if we did this, nobody would understand a thing. And the producer agreed, nodding vigorously. He smiled and said, that's the beauty of Gothic. <laughs> oh my God. And this explains a lot because a lot of my notes towards the end of my second viewing of this movie mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. say, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did like the themes and the source material of this movie, but all the parts to it didn't really make a lot of sense. Like it was just a lot going on for not a lot of reason. No. So like the two maids, I mean, I guess the Annette character sleeping with Ludwig that added a different dynamic to the whole situation. But mm. Rowena, I don't, who is she? She just seems like <laughs> a bona fide witch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like she's doing rituals with Laura for no reason. I'm not entirely sure what they're trying to achieve there. Uh, and then she cuts off the... Does she hang the peddler or she just cuts off his hand to figure out who killed him? I think she does. And yeah. then she makes a candle holder out of his severed hand. I mean, it's odd behavior. It's very strange behavior. <laughs> yeah. She's basically a Mrs. Danvers figure like Rebecca, you know, the housekeeper that knows too much and right. is an insidious power in the household. You know, then right. she signals that early on. You have that dinner scene where she just emerges from the shadows in mm. the doorway and yeah. it's all very spooky. But I mean, again, she's there just as this massive red herring. Yes, yes. And after she's stabbed, she turns around and screams Laura mm. when that isn't who stabbed her. And then right. when there's gathered <laughs> yeah. around her body holding some sort of vigil in a thunderstorm, clearly mm. a great idea. Mm -hmm. Her body sits bolt upright and points at Laura and then goes back down again. So she's wrong. But she's got a lot of conviction, even <laughs> beyond the grave. Yes. Also, uh, talking about unnecessary characters, let's say, Friedrich mm. Klaus could have just not had him in the movie. No. You could have, instead, you could have had the father just investigating. Like, he just seemed completely superfluous. I just didn't understand what his role was. No, and he's not terribly active. And that's one of the features of these movies. As I said, there's much more of a focus on female characters, and that mm. means that the male characters tend to be quite weak. Yeah. Christopher Lee's character is quite weak in this, to be honest. He seems sort of confused and concerned and not terribly in control or assertive. Yeah, completely underutilised. I mean, mm. it's Christopher Lee. I know. Like, what, what? You're not giving him enough to do. No. <laughs> He was quite dismissive about the movie. Oh. I have a quote from him from his autobiography. Right. We moved down to a gothic house in southern Italy to make The Curse of Karnstein, which is the original screenplay's title. Right. A confection of elements of Lefanu's Carmilla. And here it was my pleasure to be Count Ludwig von Karnstein, the noble father of a brood of lesbian vampires. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah, I think he chafed at being cast in these vampire movies all the time. I know certainly he resented playing Dracula as many times as he did. Right, at least yeah. here he isn't typecast as the heavy. He's just the ineffectual Lord of the Manor that's having a cheeky bit on the side with his maid late at night. Mm. But he's pretty ineffectual in the movie. All he really does is bring in Friedrich to find the portrait of Sira, which is hidden underneath another portrait which is something that came up in Deep Red, actually, right. later on. So it's I haven't of, seen that yet, and I hope you didn't spoil it for me. Hopefully not, no. But it's a, it points <laughs> okay. towards the giallo movement. Mm, mm. I mean, for a 60s movie, did it seem like a 60s movie to you? No. Because it didn't for me. It felt like I was watching like a 30s movie or a 40s movie. Maybe 50s, yeah. It was very theatrical in a lot of parts. Like, it didn't yeah. feel current. 
before 60s. No, it doesn't. It's when you watch something like this that you realise why The Haunting in 1960 and Psycho in 1960 pointed towards a completely new style of horror and why they were so groundbreaking. Mm. Because when you watch something like this and you see very theatrical modes of performance, lots of running from tree to tree and clutching them and gasping. Yeah, and exactly. That sort of really stagey way of speaking where you're right next to the person you're speaking to but you're looking away from them with your chin held high as though you're projecting to the back of the stage and mm. it just looks so antiquated and odd yeah and and i mean also the fact that it is black and white as well mm. so it does have that sort of retro look obviously yeah but the lighting as well like very film noir lighting. Yeah. Like they're lighting where it's only like this much lighting. You can only see the eyes on their face and nothing else. Yeah. That's a real 40s technique. Yeah, it's quite expressionistic. I like the lighting. I like the cinematography in this movie. But yeah, it's, it's not subtle. <laughs> That's no. For sure. Yeah, all those crash zooms, right? <laughs> oh, see, the zooms I hate. Even in The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining, I hate the crash zooms because it just feels anachronistic because it's so obviously mechanical. Sure. You just feel that this is a piece of technology in a period setting. It just brings me right out of it. Mm. If the camera had sort of silently dollied in or craned in, I would have been fine with it. But crash zooming in a castle, I don't know. It's, yeah. Something about it just feels wrong to me. It's quite jarring in terms of viewing experience. Yeah. Cinematography wise, like you, I, I did really enjoy it. Like it did look mm. quite beautiful as a film. Yeah, there's some great compositions in here. The dream sequences, one yes. of which I'll talk about in the Mooblies, very effectively staged. There are some really great shots in there. Yeah, yeah. I did laugh, though, in terms of the black and white aspect of the film. Oh. Because when there's something like blood that shows up, you can't assume it's blood. They have to state it. It's blood. <laughs> so we know that it's blood. <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you discover by lying face down naked on a marble floor today? <laughs> uh, the, the piece of trivia I have, you, you kind of alluded to it before, but Christopher Lee has in fact played Dracula ten times. Oh. in his career. Uh, seven films wow. for Hammer Productions uh, and also a film called Count Dracula uh, by Jesus Franco in 1970. An uncredited role in One More Time uh, in 1970. Lastly, in Edward Molinaro's Dracula and Son in 1976. Wow. So yeah, I think he uh, got a bit sick of it. Yeah, he, he resented it towards the end. And uh, I think he said in his autobiography that he felt as though he was emotionally blackmailed into doing it because Hammer would phone him up and say, we've got the green light on Dracula 37 or whatever. And he would say, oh, I, I don't want to do that. And he'd say, oh, no, but we've already sold it to the distributor. Think of all the people whose jobs are on the line, all the crew. Oh, oh no. Think of them starving on the streets. Oh, oh, Christopher, you can't do that. So he felt as though he was emotionally blackmailed into doing them all the time, and he hated it. Right, hated yeah. It. I, I read as well, like, the sort of uh, later roles uh, doing Dracula. He, he was kind of shoehorned into scripts. So they weren't even Dracula oh. scripts. So he didn't even have much to do. Like, he didn't have very many lines. Oh. He, he was pretty much <laughs> not even a, a central character. He was just kind of, oh, it's Dracula again, played by Christopher Lee. Here we go. <laughs> oh, no. That must be awful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And that's our trivia. Shall we talk about the music? The music I quite liked. Yeah. It was quite pervasive, but not in a way that took me out of the movie. And there were some interesting combinations of instruments. A lot of harp. Yeah, a bit of harpsichord, which I think <laughs> yeah. you have to have if you're in a castle with suits of armour and drippy candles. You've got to have a bit of harpsichord. Well, that dinner scene, mm. I just immediately had your voice in my head going, oh, this music's a bit plinky-plonky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is one that I made a mental note. Oh, this would 
be a good one to do for uh, one of the little break jingles that we do in the episode. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I do like that one. It's a bit of an odd cue because it's a sort of camera slowly goes into room while plinky plonky harpsichord and piano music plays and then it stops and then they start talking. Mm. I almost imagine there was somebody in the corner playing it. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, in terms of instrumentation for the music, uh, there's a theremin at, one, at some points. Yeah. Uh, there's some sort of vibrato instrument i'm not sure whether it's a vibraphone or an organ or even a synth like it sounded quite ethereal yeah there's some early synth work going on in there so the music is by carlos savina who composed a lot of film scores but is probably best known for his work with nina rota on the godfather right so he was often a conductor Yes. As well as an arranger and a composer in his own right. Yeah. In this movie, he's credited as Herbert Buckman. Uh, (laughs) And I did look at his filmography, as well as a a ton of conducting and general music department uh, work. He has done a lot Mm. of Spanish and Italian films in terms of scoring. From the 1950s all the way up to to 1990. Right. It's impressive. The list. Huge. Busy guy. And it's great music. I mean, in this movie, it's evocative and it's doing a lot of work, especially in the dream sequences to create the atmosphere. There's some great stuff in here. And none of it seems too old fashioned or invasive or mood breaking. Mm. Seems to be pretty modernistic and experimental. So I was impressed with it. Yeah, a lot of movies pre-70s are like overscored. There's just too much music, and it Mm. wasn't the case for this movie. No. It was a lot of harp, though, I have to admit. (laughs) There's a lot of harp. There's a lot of organ. But you've also got great sound design elements, like the bell that tolls. I mean, it's ridiculous. You've got a hunchback in a movie with a bell, and then he ends up being hung hung in the bell tower. The bells, the bells. But yeah, so it's got some interesting sound elements as well. I mean, even though... There's not a lot of sound design in there. It's like that in anything pre-70s, there's no sound. Mm. Like people walking around silent. Any item makes zero noise. They're outside, you don't hear any birds. It's just, they have very limited means back then. Not a lot of tracks to play with, I guess, on the mixing desk. (laughs) Not like these days. No. But as a sound element, I did like the bell tolling. They set it up very early at the beginning and it does culminate in that great scene in the abandoned church. And just the idea that that was the site of Sira's crucifixion, Mm. I think. The village has turned into this abandoned, rotten remnant of the Mm. past that still has this ghostly bell tolling in the background to remind them of their past all the time. I thought that was... Very Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart. There's Mm. a lot of that guilt that's Mm -hmm. uh, preying upon their minds all the time. Yeah. I thought that was great. Uh, That reveal was uh, Mm. my favourite part of the movie. Like, it was shocking. Like, I didn't expect it. Everything else, pretty predictable, Um, even the twist. Yeah. But that was like, wow, I did not see that coming. No, and it's got that lovely grisly detail of the dog pulling on the peddler's leg that's causing the bell to toll. Yeah, it's sad, but I mean, that bell's been ringing for like an hour or something. My dog would have gotten bored after about five minutes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a bit unlikely. I don't know. I I liked it. I thought it was effective. It was very effective. (laughs) That's for sure. Uh, The cousin in the the tomb was a bit unexpected and not in a good way. Yeah, (laughs) the whole end of this movie, I just do not understand. Why is there an... It's an uncle, isn't it, or a cousin? I thought it was a cousin, but it could have been an uncle. He's been lying in wait in the secret crypt in a glass coffin all this time on the off chance that the murderer of his daughter will show up. Yeah, highly unlikely. Come on. I know. What's he been (laughs) eating? But I mean, there's so much of it. Like, let's go to the ruined village and investigate the mysterious bell tolling in the middle of the night in our bedclothes, Mm. says Luba. And Laura, who's just had a terrifying nightmare, nevertheless agrees. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's likely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like Luba's story about deconstructing the suits of armour that terrified her as a child to prove that there's nothing, literally nothing to be frightened of. There's nothing in there. Mm. I thought that was a good story, but still, I don't think it would convince me to go walking to a ruined village mm. in the middle of the night in my pyjamas to investigate a bell tolling. No, I would not do that. No. And... <laughs> The hunchback was Rowena's friend, but she still cuts his hand off to use it as an evil detector. Yeah. Why? Don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's gruesome. Yeah. I didn't think that would exist in a 60s movie. No, I didn't either. Apparently the director, who was mostly known for comedies, actually, and the only reason he directed this and another movie that he's quite famous for, An Angel for Satan, in 1966 with Barbara Steele, which I also haven't seen, but apparently it's quite well known among horror fans. All right. But he did not like this kind of stuff. And so Tonino Valeri, one of the screenplay writers who was also working as an assistant director, he says he directed those scenes oh, because right. Camillo did not like them. Right. <laughs> I just thought it was all a bit creepy. Yeah, I mean, I liked it because, you know, it's horror. This is almost barely a horror movie. I mean, it's called Crypt of the Vampire. Mm. And those two aspects of the title are barely in this movie. Mm. Is she even a vampire? I don't know. There's that, that one scene where the, the, the bite on Nuba's neck, which I don't even know where that came from and the significance of that. It's gone in the next scene as well. Uh, oh, is it? Is it gone? Yeah, it's gone <laughs> right. the day after. Yeah, she's on a swing set. She's fine. Yeah, and then they go into the crypt right at the end. Yeah. So Crypt of the Vampire, not a very uh, apt name, really. No, it's not. There are no fangs. Many of the trappings that you expect in a vampire movie are not here. So, yeah, and is she a witch or is she a vampire? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to know what it's like in in the original novella, Camilla. Like, was it more obvious, the vampirism? I think it was, and I think the whole red herring mystery, who is it, aspect is not in there either so yeah a lot of it is um trappings of the genre that resonated with italian audiences i think so yeah and why change the name camilla that's a far better name than laura yeah <laughs> laura <laughs> camilla karnstein yeah there's the alliteration too that would be much better yeah because that name or that character has also appeared in an anime a japanese anime called vampire hunter d bloodlust in 2000 so yeah it's obviously a character that has inspired later movies yes the uh, sexually alluring seductress i mean we've seen vamp as well with grace jones of course yes yeah why is it that vampires are so sexy i don't understand It's the blood, I guess. Even in the Twiglet movies, where they're just sparkly and <laughs> they're still alluring in a very chaste kind of way. Yeah. I don't understand. It, the words goes hand in hand, the whole sex part. Yeah, it's a lot of physical transgression. I guess it's the metaphor of like sex is evil, vampires are sex personified. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> it is, yeah. And a lot of this comes out of the repressiveness of the regime because, of course, Italy is emerging from fascism mm. and it had a period of Italian neorealist films, which I studied at university, oh, Italian okay. neorealism. Right. So the bicycle thieves, things like that. So where everything was very pragmatic and focusing on real fears like poverty right. uh, and hunger. And then all of a sudden you get this explosion of gothic sexually repressed fantasy so i think it's all uh, a reaction to uh, difficult times interestingly as well to think about v in relation to this because as lars was telling us a lot of these uh, fascist regimes and authoritarian regimes they censor and repress horror films Mm. so you end up with these films sneaking out as though they are adaptations of literary classics and i think camilla fits into that although uh, you know <laughs> it's just taking an opportunity to make a horror movie and just letting all of this uh sexual repression just spill out on screen in interesting yeah. ways i mean i guess because it was the 60s it was quite tame in terms of mm. showing all of that yeah because if this had come out in the 70s you would have seen boobs galore oh yeah 
and blood and all sorts of yeah. <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it would have been gorier too, because, I mean, this is much more, it's trying to give more of a sense of the uncanny and being slightly disturbing and mm. playing with reality and dreams and the crossover between the two. There's not that much explicit gore. You see one person stabbed on screen, but most of it happens off screen mm. with mm. black screens, with screaming over them. It's not a very explicit movie at all. Yeah. Yeah. Quite coy. Mm, mm. One final thing I don't understand. Yes, you said they go to the crypt right at the end of the movie. Why do they go to the crypt right after Christopher Lee shouts, To the village! Is the crypt in the village? It must be. I don't understand. Because then it seems like he's never been there before. And then he says he hasn't got a key for it. Yeah. I've never had a key for this gate. It's never been opened before. So it feels like it's in the house and it's got the marble star on the floor that oh, Laura and Edwina were using for their weird ritual yeah. where poor Laura must have gotten nipple frostbite lying face down naked on that. I don't fancy that, <laughs> poor Laura. So, yeah, where is the crypt? Where are they? Mm. Why are they there? Are they going after the girls? Why are the girls going to the village again? They didn't say they were going to do that in the previous scene. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't exactly know where the girls are going as well because they end up at the carriage. Yeah, why was the carriage there? What are they doing? Why are they going to the carriage for? I don't understand. <laughs> the whole last act of this movie, I do not understand. Yeah. So I guess it's just uh, as Ernesto Castaldi said, they just took the last twelve pages and said, "Screw it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre. It's the prestigious Movie Award. Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite satanic ritualistic parts of the film in a number of seductively vampiric categories. Best quote. My favourite quote is a fabulous example of dubbing, and I suspect dubbing to cover a plot hole or a potential confusion. Oh, yes. And it's right after you've seen the hunchback peddler hanged in the clock tower and you cut to Rowena wandering around the castle in the dark using his severed hand as a candelabra evil detector and she off screen suddenly trots out at an incredibly fast rate forgive me my peddler friend but I have robbed you of your hand to avenge you Right. <laughs> really? That doesn't make any sense. So it, it feels like, let's just dub this in to explain what the hell is going on here and that mm. she isn't the killer. But, I mean, after she just belts that out in the dark, I have so many questions. <laughs> like, yeah. Why have you <laughs> mutilated your friend's body and started wandering around with candles stuck on it? What are you doing? Yeah. Makes uh, no sense. And you? My favorite quote, it, it's more the worst delivery, actually. So it's it's during the table, <laughs> the dinner table scene, uh, and Laura says something profound. She says, we really have visitors here. It's like living in a tomb or somewhere at the very edge of the world. And then Friedrich Klaus replies, I like these ancient castles. They have such an atmosphere of mystery. It's just... <laughs> The worst acting. He he is the worst actor, or whoever dubbed him is the worst actor. It's just zero charm. Yeah, it's no wonder that Laura's got eyes for lube. Oh, yeah, exactly. Best hair or costume? Uh, I mean, the women are all just stunning in this movie. Uh, mm. Laura, there's one scene where she wears like a lace-trimmed pinstripe dress, and it's just amazingly tailored and she's got like a choker necklace and just stunning i don't know whether it's period accurate but looks great no no that's true and we'll come to that when we get to most 60s i think My favourite, though, was the Count's fabulous dressing gown, which is embroidered with the letter K. Even Annette's jealous of this dressing gown. It is so gorgeous. He saunters around halfway through the movie in this thing. It's like heavy velvet with inlaid gold fleur-de-lis embroidery with a gold rope with tassels around Mm -hmm. his waist and... 
a, a gold quilted lapel revealing a white nightshirt, which of course is got these big pointy lapels because it's yeah. you know it's the sixties baby, and so <laughs> there's a lot of hairy chest exposed too. Uh-huh. So yeah, Christopher Lee looks fabulous in mm-hmm. his dressing gown. <laughs> Most sixties moment. Well, most 60s, I think the styling, as you hinted to in the previous category, it it does not look necessarily period accurate. And particularly, I think the women do have very thick eyeliner and beehive hairdos. Mm. And I was just looking at them thinking, it's Amy Winehouse. (laughs) Yeah. The eyeliner straight giveaway. I mean, um, mm. they've even got the cat's eye, like um, pointed edges. Yeah. Like that's yeah, only sixties. <laughs> it's not period accurate at all. Mm. Favorite scene. Uh, I mentioned earlier the the reveal of the peddler hanging from the bell. I was just not expecting it. As it was truly shocking, and yeah, it was a very effective scene. It was, yeah. I was not expecting it, and with that extra macabre detail of the dog pulling on his leg, resulting in the bell being pulled. Yeah, mm. yeah, Great. really sort of grisly and disturbing. Mm. How about you? Well, my favourite was Laura's Dream. I mentioned it before just because of how expressionistic and adventurous it was in terms of camera and lighting. You've got uh, the overhead shot of Laura in bed, the image of Tilda, the victim that I think the uncle is hiding out in the coffin about at the end. I think the first first victim she appears floating eerily towards the camera the appearance of the other women in laura's life all accusing her of being the killer offering her a huge chalice of blood i guess Hmm. as you say Hmm. black and white movie so you can't tell (laughs) (laughs) and then innocent luba sort of leaning out of the shadows in a chair and yeah, and then there's lots, lots of nose rubbing on hands for some reason and, and a yeah, surprise right. cut to a, a skull instead of Luba's face, signifying either Luba being the death that takes up tenancy in their house, as the peddler says oh. a couple of times, or possibly that she's the next victim, who knows. But yeah, lots of great cinematography in terms of the way the camera moves and the lighting, the, the lighting across the eyes, mm. as you say. It's all very very heavily stylized and adventurous and there's a great score going on there too so i love that scene yeah yeah most cliche horror moment it's almost unfair to pick cliches in old movies because the the old movies like was it a cliche back then (laughs) i guess the whole gothic horror and big castles that's a cliche Mm. with with candles and suits of armor everywhere um (laughs) yeah thunder in climactic scenes you know that's pretty pretty obvious and one thing in terms of like just general cliches because the only way to show that people have had sex without showing people having sex is to have someone smoking and someone still be in bed so it's like oh i know i know what just happened (laughs) yes afterglow (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, one thing I thought in terms of filmmaking is the mirror scare. So you always have a a mirror jump scare in a horror movie. Although I thought this one was an interesting twist on that cliche because it's not really set up as a jump and it's actually a clue for later in the movie. Because once the mirror is moved, he spots that it's moved and it leads into a secret passageway. So, yeah, I thought that was quite a twist on what would become Mm. a pretty big horror movie cliche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't the uh, bathroom cabinet scene. (laughs) Oh, bathroom cabinets, honestly. They should all be taken down. Yeah. (laughs) Best special effect. Were there any special effects in this movie? Um, The only thing I could pick out was Tilda floating towards the camera because she's on some sort of uh, dolly track, which I thought was very effective. And yeah, I mean, the whole double exposure thing, having people disappear. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a simple effect, but it, I mean, like back yeah. then it would have, been, would have been pretty scary, I guess. <laughs> Favourite sound effect. There was thunder, 
uh, <laughs> at some point, and I, I couldn't figure out whether it was actually thunder or one of those, you know, those thunder machines they used to have back then for like radio plays, oh, yeah, because yeah. it did sound quite. I don't know, repetitive, mm. like it was being performed rather than an actual recording. But it could have just been the same recording, just played over and over again. So, you know, I, know. I, I often think it's that because it's yeah. sort of the same noise just looping. So I have a horrible feeling they're just playing the same bit of tape over and over right, again. Right, maybe, maybe. <laughs> just the same stock sound. There was yeah. one sound I quite liked, which is the gate opening in the crypt after. Count Karlstein oh. says, I don't have a key for this gate. Yes. Even though he's never seen it before, I think. I don't know. And it's not the stock standard creaking door. It's almost mm. like a dry human voice moaning. And there's the lovely detail at the end of the sound of metal scraping across stone as uh -huh. it comes to a halt. That's not just sort of put on stock sound effect and leave it. They've mm. actually put some thought into it, which, you know, as I've learned from you and from the films we've seen, not typical of the era to put that much effort into the sound design. No. Most funniest moment. I've already mentioned mine. The quote, the, the delivery of uh, of Friedrich. I mean, it's terrible at the dinner <laughs> table scene. Just terrible. But I laughed a lot. Yes. Well, the scene that had me laughing an awful lot, which we mentioned earlier, Luba's arrival. Okay, oh, so picture yes. this. <laughs> Laura is outside enjoying the garden, reading a book or something, and then she witnesses a carriage wheel blowout on a passing carriage. Mm. Uh, note that this, this blowout is fixed in one minute. I timed it. So they must carry a spare carriage wheel and they must oh. have a team that's like a pit stop team at Formula One racing because that thing is fixed fast anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the woman leaves her frail daughter after they've dragged her out of the wreckage and she says, oh, she's, she's a bit feeble. She shouldn't have come on this journey and I've got to be somewhere. So can I just leave her with you? Yes. And <laughs> I'm just, what is, you don't know who these people are. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Unbelievable. I also like that Friedrich just takes the pulse of Luba and says, it's nothing serious. I know. Steady heartbeat and that's it. You know, she could have a major concussion, internal bleeding, yeah. two broken legs. I just heard Melinda's voice in my head that just, just screaming at the medical inaccuracy or <laughs> inadequacy of this uh, diagnostic tool. But anyway, yeah, no introductions until they leave. They've driven off. The woman hasn't given her name no idea who she is when mm. she's coming back if she's coming back and then once she's gone after her carriage is fixed in less than a minute laura says hey i'm laura and luba says yeah i'm laura I'm luba so it's like well <laughs> what and then i'm thinking to myself how are they going to explain the fact that they stabbed luba's body in the well sierra's body in the crypt and therefore luba has vanished the mother's going to come back at some point in her carriage and say, oh, I'm here to pick up my frail daughter. And they're just going to say, oh, she vanished after we stabbed a corpse in our crypt. <laughs> so she's not yeah. here. She was actually a vampire and we had to kill her and she's gone. A uh, lesbian. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> she's vampire lesbian, so we killed her. Sorry. How's, how's that that's going what to you go? get for for trusting complete strangers with complete your daughter. strangers with your kid <laughs> yeah there you go and that's our mooblies yep <laughs> hi my name's serge bernardjuk of cold crash pictures and you're listening to movie oubliette Uh -huh, we're at the most crucial part of the podcast. The final verdict. Should Crypto the Vampire be released from the oubliette to seduce noble woman and be loved by all? Or should its remains be stabbed with a stake and spend eternity in the depths of the oubliette, having its eyes devoured by ravens? Conrad. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> final thoughts for this film. Yeah, it's tricky because on, I want to give a movie a fair shake, even if it's an old movie, and to sort of accept that, you know, the mode of performance, the technical abilities, the style, the sort of trappings of the genre will be different. And so some of it will look 
ridiculous or hokey. So you want to accept it on a level as it is. But even then, although I like the cinematography, I love some of the dream sequences and it's fascinating some of the themes that it's hinting on and engaging with and the adaptation of the Carmilla source material. But at the end of the day, the characters didn't really do anything for me. The plot made absolutely no sense whatsoever, especially in the third act. I just did not have a clue why anybody was doing anything they were doing. Mm. The overall effect, I thought, was this isn't something that should be necessarily pulled out of the era and held up for reappraisal or 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 thought of as influential in any way, not not like the haunting. So I don't know, I still just looked at this as bizarre, mildly entertaining artifact with Christopher mm-hmm. Lee in it not doing much. So as much as I want to appreciate it for what it is, I still don't think I'd be grabbing people on the street and telling them to watch it, to be honest. So yeah, it's a no from me. Mm. Sorry, Eddie mm. Coulter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might have to agree. Um, there are a lot of noteworthy parts of the film. I did love the the mm. source material. It was something quite brave for the, the decade mm. of the 60s. I kind of wanted more of that. I wanted to see more of the dynamic and interaction between Laura and Luba. You didn't really see some sort of relationship really forming. And most of the other characters, I just wanted them to go away <laughs> especially Friedrich <laughs> just pointless uh, yeah the the final act made zero sense and uh, kind of just made the the ending just ridiculous it just yeah most of the most of the movie for me um, was a bit bored just very slow but in saying that older movies are slower paced so that might mm. be a bit of an unfair critique. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would recommend this movie. I think the source material definitely has become influential. And um, I I really enjoy the sort of the feminine side of the vampire genre. That's really interesting. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would recommend this movie. Sorry, Eddie. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Eddie recommended this to us or nominated it because he thought it would be an interesting example of the Italian Gothic era. Not that he particularly loves it, just thinks it's an interesting topic to cover. And it certainly was. I mean, it's we want to explore a wider range of films this year. So, yeah, I was grateful to experience it, but I don't know, nothing about it really grabbed me, unfortunately. It might be a great example of the genre. It still didn't do anything for me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did love the the sort of lesbian aspect of the movie. Um, hmm. If it had a different ending, like if, if everyone else died and it was just the two girls, I would have been happy with that. That would have been great. Oh, yeah. That would oh, have been yeah. really interesting. <laughs> But yeah, having transgressive for sure. <laughs> yeah, pitch Friedrich down a well. <laughs> yeah, being scared straight. Uh, not the kind of moral I wanted in the movie. No. Yeah. But I'm glad that I'm now aware of the Carmilla novella, and and now mm. will notice it in movies and see. Yeah, I I can kind of see where that originated. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> Terror from the crypt or. Crypt of the Vampire or whatever this film may be called. Yep. You're going back in the crypt, I'm afraid. Get back down there. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be comfortable down there. It's used to being in a crypt. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Conrad, any crypt-worthy films for next episode? Well, we're going to leap rather brazenly back to familiar territory for our next episode. We're in the 80s. We're going to be in science fiction because we've done quite a bit of horror recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will be watching the 84 American science fiction film... The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Wow. <laughs> this has been, I've been eyeing this movie for a while and I, I'm aware of, of a sort of significant cult following for this movie. Uh, yeah. So interesting. I will be excited to finally uh, watch it. Yes, me too, because it feels like this cult iconic item from the 80s and as an 80s kid, I 
have not seen it. I have no idea what it's about. All I know is it stars Peter Weller yes. and Ellen Barkin and John Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum and Christopher Lloyd, Ronald Lacey and Clancy Brown. And my goodness, it's got an incredible wow. cast. That is impressive. And it, I think it's batshit crazy from what I can tell, but I have never seen it. So I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if you want to look forward to our uh, future episodes, listeners, you can follow us on all our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as MovieOubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever other platform you are using. It really does help us out. And even... If you don't do that, just just share the podcast to your friends and family. Mm, anyone who'll listen, frankly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate films for us to cover, as Eddie did for today's episode. Mm. Or for $5, you get access to our exclusive minisodes, where we talk about different films, perhaps popular movies or new movies, or we might even try completely different genres this year. Who knows? But we'll be doing those as videos this year. Yes, yes, yes. So if you have any ideas for minisodes that you would like us to do or movies you'd like us to cover, uh, just let us know. Mm, yeah, we're open to all ideas for things that we can talk about that we can't normally talk about on the podcast. Yes, yes. And we do have merchandise as well with our logo and everything you can think of uh, at Redbubble. <laughs> we do, yes. Not severed hands with candles on, though. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get those uh, later on in the year. <laughs> yeah, Redbubble haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> All right. Thanks, listeners, for another episode. Catch us next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. Why don't we get married? You could be my daughter. Then a 